I'm making my way through the life and uh, teachings and the ministry of Jesus. And uh, we have just brought to a conclusion a period of ministry in the life of Jesus that extended for several months, and most of it we don't have any record of what went on. So for maybe six or seven months uh, before what we read here, there is a, a period of silence. It would be longer than that if we never had uh, what we had from John about the early Judean ministry when Jesus had his conversation with Nicodemus and then on his way up to Galilee had that conversation with the woman at the well. Uh, We would know virtually nothing about uh, several months of Jesus' life. During that time, we don't have record of any sermons that Jesus preached. I suppose he did. He was teaching his disciples, and, uh, and people were attracted to the miracles that he was performing. I just can't imagine that he never preached a sermon at all during those months. But the text that I have for this morning is the first time that we hear of him preaching in public. And so um, the content of this keynote message, I think, is very important Let's see what Jesus said in his first public sermon that the Lord has seen fit to record for us. Mark chapter 1, verse 14. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. My introduction for this entire sermon is, in fact, an introduction for only the final point, but I hope that it will serve the purpose of an introduction and arrest your attention and make you eager to hear what else this passage of Scripture has to say to us. There are a number of books and movies that uh, indicate that if, if a person practices a sin or a vice long enough, he turns into an animal. So this is set forth quite, not, not literally, of course, Boethius doesn't think that people literally turn into animals, but in, in his great book, The Consolation of Philosophy, Boethius uh, maintains that when uh, humans continue in sin and vice for so long, they actually lose their humanity. And uh, then that same idea shows up in uh, works of art like Edmund Spencer's Fairy Queen, but you probably will be most familiar with it with the examples that I'm going to give now. In Walt Disney's Pinocchio, you remember when Pinocchio took up with Lampwick and uh, was led into uh, the, the place where boys misbehaved? And uh, these boys that were promised all of these all of these pleasurable experiences in fact started turning into donkeys because they were acting like donkeys and and so they were turned into donkeys or you may remember in uh, in the voyage of the dawn treader i think it was in the chronicles of narnia that eustace one of the pavinci children uh, is stubborn. He's eaten. He's eaten Turkish delight that was provided to him by the by the White Witch, and he has been infected with uh, 
with her way of thinking. And so he separates from the other, other Pavinci children. And, and uh, he finds a dragon, and he finds a, a dragon's hoard. So dragons, as everyone knows, have all of this uh, gold and silver and jewels that they, they sit and enjoy their gold. And this dragon was just about to die. But Eustace is so greedy, and he's such a bad boy that uh, he falls asleep on the dragon's hoard, and then when he wakes up, much to his dismay, he has turned into a dragon. Or if you uh, like anime movies, maybe you've seen Spirited Away, and uh, there the parents, uh, the parents are eating, just shoveling food into their mouth, and they turn into pigs, turn into pigs. So there are, uh, there are other works of art and so on that I could probably mention, but that's enough to establish the point. That, uh, and I think, it is, a, I think it, is script, it is a scriptural point, that when you tell a lie, well, if it's just one lie, then that's something you should repent of. And so far, it has not, it has not destroyed your character. But if you tell another lie and get away with it, then the habit of being a liar is ingrained more deeply into your heart. And then if you keep on lying, it's not long until you become a liar. That's the way it is with sin. So any sin, you you first of all think, I, I can indulge in this sin and I'm going to be able to keep away from it. But sin is like the tar baby in the Br'er Rabbit story. Once you, once you start interacting with the tar baby, it gets all over you and you can't get it off. I remember walking into a science class in the seventh grade and there was a uh, a fellow in that class who was about 16 or 17 years old in the seventh grade, uh, he, had on his, he had on the palm of his hand a little silver thing that he was shaking around. And uh, what is it? It was quicksilver or, or it was mercury, heavy metal, and he was, he was playing with it. I, I thought maybe that explained why he was 16 years old and in the seventh grade. Probably ate a lot of lead paint, too. <laughs> but anyway, you, some of you think, oh, no, the kid, the kid ha- was playing with mercury. He's probably dead now. Because as fascinating as it is to have liquid metal rolling around on your hand, it doesn't stay on the surface of your hand. It gets down into your skin and enters into your bloodstream, and your body doesn't have the capacity to cleanse itself of heavy metals. Sin is like that. Sin is not something that stays outside of you. It's like you you fall down the first time that you sin. The second time that you commit the same sin, you fall down and it gets on you. And then if you keep on, you start living in that sin like a pig. You fall down at first... If you repent and get up, good. But if you keep on, then you fall down, it gets on you. If you keep on, then you eventually become someone who dwells in the mud. And all of that is to introduce 
one of the essential points of this first sermon that Jesus preached, and that is repent. Repent and believe the gospel. So what this, this sermon, which surely was much longer than this, is boiled down to this very concise summary. The time has been fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. So every word of this is important. I think, first of all, it's, uh, it's instructive and uh, certainly heart-rending for me to think about the opening of this passage of Scripture when it says after John was arrested. He wasn't yet dead. He was eventually going to be executed, but he wasn't yet dead. And so this first point in this sermon is to urge you to take note of God's mysterious managements. God's mysterious managements. Here was a man, John the Baptist, who was, by Jesus' own acknowledgement, the greatest man who had been born of woman, and, and, and God allows him to be put into prison, allows, him, allows his voice to be silenced. I look at that and I think, God's ways are above my ways. I think that I would have had John the Baptist have a very long ministry. But God in his mysterious managements has his purposes. And uh, God is able to accomplish what he wants to be done without human instrumentality when he wants. And sometimes someone who seems like he or she is going to be very instrumental in the kingdom of God is allowed to die young, and the Lord takes them home early. And we just wonder, why? How could this be? One of the best books that I know of is The Life of God and the Soul of Man, written by Henry Skugel, who died when he was 26 years old. One of the most influential books in the history of Christianity is The Life and Diary of David Brainerd. Up until about 1960, probably more people were called to the mission field through reading the life and diary of David Brainerd than anyone else, than through reading any other book. David Brainerd died when he was about 30. Oh, and what took over in 1960, you ask? Was probably through Gates of Splendor by Elizabeth Elliot, whose husband, Jim Elliot, the very talented young missionary who had gone to Ecuador... Uh, was speared to death by the Alka Indians when he and some of his comrades attempted to take the gospel to them. But the the diaries and writings of of Jim Elliot uh, have continued to be influential down through the years. By the way, if you're interested, uh, Lorenzo has two of the spears. Have you got them with you right there, Lorenzo? Stand up and hold those up. Uh, Lorenzo spent, uh, spent the summer in Ecuador And those are two of the kind of spears that were used to uh, spear Jim Elliott and uh, his comrades to death back, I think it was in the the late 1950s. Uh, But there again, another young man put to death death early. And uh, I I look at those spears and I think that would have been, it'd take a long time to spear somebody to death with one of those unless you just pierced them right through the heart. There's no barbs, no cutting edges on those spears. And uh, why, does, why does God allow something like that to happen? I remember reading missionary stories about other missionaries who were going to go to, to islands in the South Pacific. And the moment that they stepped off the boat, they were killed and eaten by the cannibals who inhabited that, that coast. 
Why does God allow things like that to happen? Why does God allow such a talented, influential preacher as John the Baptist to be put into prison? And I don't know the answer to that. But I'm pointing it out to say that we need to take note of it so that we will be prepared for similar such providential actings in our own lives and as we observe God's workings in the world. God does not, God is not a man. God does not work according to our timetable or timetable or according to what we think is best. Sometimes God has John the Baptist arrested and John the Baptist is put to death while he's in prison. And all of that would just be terribly unfair and unthinkable if it were not for the fact that in comparison to eternity, this life is just a little molecule of, of an instant. And so though John the Baptist died uh, when he was probably about 30 years old or not much older than that, and we shake our heads and say, what a tragedy, John the Baptist doesn't think that. John the Baptist is, is thankful that the Lord took him home when he did. But when, so God, God manages things in a mysterious way sometimes, and we just need to be prepared for that. To be forewarned is to be forearmed. But after John was put into prison, then Jesus uh, saw that uh, the situation in uh, Judea uh, was getting uh, to be uh, a situation where he was likely to be killed before it was time. And so he left Judea and he goes back to Galilee. And when he comes into Galilee, then he comes with this message. The time is fulfilled. Now, from this, we understand that uh, there has been a lot of preparation that has gone into this very moment. In fact, I think that we can say with confidence that all of the Old Testament was laid down as a foundation for this moment when Jesus comes and says, the time is fulfilled, repent, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Uh, So, All throughout history, God had been laying down this this big foundation, and it took thousands of years for him to do it. That's some indication as to how patient and how meticulous God is, but it's also an indication as to how important Jesus is that all of this was leading up to this person at this hour. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. So God had always ruled the world. And so, in a sense, the kingdom of God had always been in effect. But throughout all this time of laying the foundation, God had told his prophets and instructed his people that there is going to come a time when a great change is going to take place. And this great change will be that I am going to, from this point on, rule the world through a designated king. And that designated king is Jesus. And so when Jesus says the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand, then he is saying all that has been prophesied regarding the reign of God being administered through a Messiah, through a man, is now coming about. The kingdom of God is near. And so since that is the case, then he gives, he preaches this two-point sermon. Repent and believe in the gospel. 
Now, in verse 14, he has already mentioned the gospel. So in verse 14, it says, Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. So you've heard the, you've heard the word gospel your whole life. You probably have even heard that it means good news. In Greek, it is composed of a prefix that means good, prefix that we would write it E-U, and then another word, angelos, which means messenger, or angelion, which means message. And so when you put the prefix E-U, it means good message. In English, we have a number of words that begin with E-U, like euphoria, or euthanasia, or eugenics. And in all those cases, it means, it means good. And uh, some, of those, some of those things were used in a very bad way, but the words themselves mean good genes or good pleasant death. Uh, euphoria, of course, means good feeling. And so the, the gospel is a good, A-U, it is a good message. It is a good message. I think that it is revealing of the character of God that uh, in spite of the fact that the world at large was uh, in, in agreement with the rebellion of Satan and in cooperation with the rebellion of Satan, that in light of that fact, God still comes preaching not primarily a message of judgment, but a message of reconciliation and a message of good news. This is a good message that has come from God. And it is called the gospel of God. So it is a gospel that has been authorized by God, it is also good news about God. So let's start with the last one. It is good news about God, that God is not implacable. That is, that God is not someone who folds his arms and turns his head away and says, I refuse to be friends. I refuse to make up with you. No, the good news about God is that he is Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. So the gospel is a good message about God. He is, he is willing to be friends. He is willing to make up. And then this is a gospel that has, it's a message that has been authorized by God. It's not something that uh, Jesus or someone else made up. God so loved the world that he gave, he sent his only son into the world, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It is a gospel that has come from God that is able to do all that it promises, namely reconcile us to God. But Jesus, Jesus here indicates that if you are going to uh, be a beneficiary of the gospel, you must repent and believe. 
Now, before I leave behind the gospel altogether, let me give you a very simple definition of the gospel. The gospel is the good news that God has provided everything that is necessary for sinners to be reconciled to him. And whoever repents and believes will be saved. God has provided everything that is necessary for sinners to be reconciled to him. And whoever repents and believes will be saved. That is good news, and that is what the entire Bible is about. That God, God is willing to be reconciled, and he has done everything that is necessary so that sinners may be reconciled to him. And all who repent and believe will be saved. Now let me say a word in general about repentance and belief. They are not merely <clears throat> conditions that God sees and says, Okay, since you have repented, since you have believed, then I'm going to give you something that is entirely disconnected from repentance and belief. I think I used this illustration here two weeks ago. I'm not sure. I've, I've preached a, no, a number of places lately, and I can't remember where I used what illustrations. But anyway, this is a good one. <clears throat> so you might go, you might go to a, a hamburger joint and pay the person $7. You get a $7 hamburger this past week in, in Louisville. You could pay them $7, and you can get a gourmet hamburger. But that $7 that you lay down, that paper money that you lay down, it has no organic connection to the hamburger. It is just something that you exchange for the hamburger. But if the hamburger is going to satisfy your hunger, you have to eat the hamburger. Have I already used this illustration here? Yeah. So you didn't understand it the first time, so I need to tell you again. <clears throat> so eating is analogous to repentance and faith. It's not like the money that God says, oh, okay, you have faith. Well, it might just as well have been courage, but I decided that it would be faith that was the condition. Or it might just as well have been love, but I've decided that it would be faith that is going to be the condition for salvation. No, faith, repentance and faith are like the eating of the food. It is it is an already participating in the thing that is going to satisfy you. So when you repent, you are already agreeing with God about sin and about some other important ideas, which I'm just about to point out to you. When you have faith, you are already agreeing with God about the most important ideas, about your sin, about God's provision for your sin to be forgiven. Uh, about how that you're happy to be, <clears throat> be ruled by Jesus Christ, how that you are resolved to live for him the rest of your life. All of those things are embedded in repentance and faith. So let's think for a minute about repentance. What is repentance? Well, the catechism asks the question, what is repentance unto life? And even in asking the question, there is an implication that there's a possibility of some repentance that does not lead to life. And that is true. We can read of it uh, several times in the Bible. Those of you who enjoy the sermons of C.H. Spurgeon, uh, look up sometime 
a sermon with seven texts. And that sermon with seven texts, he identifies seven people in the Bible who say, I have sinned, but it's obviously not repentance. So Pharaoh says, I have sinned, but then he continues to keep the children of Israel captive. Judas says, I have sinned, but then he gives way to despair and goes out and hangs himself. And Saul, the the first king of Israel, said, I have sinned, but then he continues to persecute David and so on. So just simply admitting that you are a sinner is not repentance. Um, Several years ago, we had a Bible school curriculum that uh, tried to simplify a gospel presentation into ABC. A was admit that you are a sinner. B is believe in Jesus Christ. And C is confess confess him as your Savior. And I appreciate the effort to make things very simple. It's something that I try to do myself. But admitting, the A was admit that you are a sinner. That is not repentance. Simply saying, yeah, I have sinned is not repentance. So there is a repentance that does not lead to life. The Bible says that faith without works is dead, and you can say the same thing about repentance. Repentance that does not change your life is dead repentance. Real repentance that leads to life is accompanied by a full purpose of and an endeavor after new obedience. So, Let's think for a minute about repentance. What is repentance unto life? And here's the answer that the catechism gives. Repentance unto life is a saving grace. Well, let's just stop right there. So this is a, it is a condition of salvation. It is, as I said, a participation in salvation. It is a saving grace. So it's not just a grace in consideration of which God grants salvation. It is a grace which is a participation in salvation. You're being saved from sin, people. It's not just saved from hell. It's salvation from sin. And so any kind of repentance that leaves you still living a life of sin is not salvation. So it is a saving grace. It is something that that God must give to you. You're the one that repents. You're the one that believes. But it is as a result of God's initiatory, regenerating grace in your life that you repented. Because if it had not been for God's bringing you to life, you never would have felt your sin. You never would have deplored your sin. You never would have hated and been miserable in your sin enough to come out of it. But God gave you life, and in that moment of regeneration, then you agreed with God about sin. And you repented. It is a saving grace. So, the catechism goes on. Repentance unto life is a saving grace, whereby a sinner, out of, and then it mentions two things, out of a true sense of his sin, and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ. Let's just pause there for a moment. So the, there are two 
Two things that are at work in the heart of someone who truly repents. First of all, he or she has a true sense of sin. Not merely saying, oh, I'm only human. Everybody does wrong stuff. And then just going on. But there is a sense that this sin is something that offends God. It is something that defiles me. It is something that transforms me from one degree of badness into another. So there is, we recognize the guilt of sin, that is that we have done things that deserve God's judgment. Then we see the corruption or the pollution of sin, that it has entered into our way of thinking and that we love these things that are persistently offensive to God. And then we take it even a step further and say, this has become the dominant note of my character. That I, I, love, I love sin more than I love God. I love sin more than I love righteousness. And when you see sin in that way, you have a true sense of your sin. That it is offensive to God it is corrupting to you. It tra- is transforming you into something that will be permanently obnoxious to God. And you cannot cleanse yourself of it. And that brings in this second essential foundational element of repentance. And that is that you have an apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ. Now, an apprehension means that you lay hold of or you have some sight of, you have some understanding of the mercy of God as it has been offered in Jesus Christ. And this is necessary for salvation because, for one thing, this is necessary for repentance because, for one thing, your conscience has been awakened to see the worthlessness of any other way of pleasing God other than through the gospel of Jesus, other than through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So your conscience has been awakened. And maybe before your, maybe before your conscience was awakened, you were able to think, well, if I just become a better person, then that's going to take care of my sin. Maybe all I need to do is just start going to church. Maybe I just need to start reading the Bible more. I know I should pray more. And, uh, and before your conscience is awakened, doing those good things, helps you. And for a while, you think, hey, this is going well. This is going pretty well. Or maybe, maybe when you're awakened to the fact, uh, not yet regenerated, but awakened to the fact that you're a sinner, you think, what I really need to do is to uh, engage in more religious activity. Uh, so I, I will, uh, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll burn incense or I will uh, I'll do something to make myself miserable. Maybe that will make God happy <clears throat> if, I, if I fast and if I do something to make myself miserable. And so there are various ways that we try to, uh, try to assuage the, <clears throat> the consciousness that we have of sin. But when our conscience is really awakened by the Holy Spirit and He helps us to see our sin as it really is, then we start looking around at all those other things and say that good works is not going to do it. Being more religious is not going to do it. And then the cross of Christ comes into view. 
And you understand that on the cross, of, on the cross this is the Son of God suffering. That he didn't deserve to suffer. That God made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. And as you look at the cross of Christ and see the suffering that He is going through, then the Holy Spirit helps you to understand He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was laid on Him. And by His stripes we are healed. And your conscience says, that's enough. I repent. I can be forgiven because that is enough. So there needs to be an apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ because your conscience has been awakened and functioning the way that it should. Your conscience will not be satisfied with anything less. And then also, apart from the mercy of God as demonstrated in Christ, you will see God as a harsh, disapproving person who is not going to receive you. What other reason would you have for believing anything different? You know that you have sinned. And outside of, outside of Christ and outside of the message of salvation through Jesus, it just looks like God is waiting to smash you like a bug. But then when you see the mercy of God demonstrated in Jesus Christ, then you begin to realize this is a, this is a saving God. This is a gracious God. This is a God who is willing to receive sinners. He's received many millions of sinners. Why may he not receive me? I repent of my sin. We see the, the, we apprehend the mercy of God in Christ. And then there's a third reason why we need to see the mercy of God as demonstrated in Christ. And that is because that demonstration of love is a very powerful incentive for us to turn away from everything that caused Christ to suffer. I mentioned David Brainerd a few minutes ago. He was a missionary to the Native Americans who lived in New England in the 1700s. And uh, he was uh, preaching to them, and he was preaching to them about the law of God, as he ought to have. But he noticed something, that when he was preaching about the cross of Christ and the love of God, that was when the Spirit of God really came down upon those Indians and moved him to repentance. And it still works that way. We may feel uh, indecisive about giving ourselves entirely to God. We may feel reluctant to leave behind a life of sinful pleasures that we have enjoyed. But then we turn our eyes to the cross. And the Holy Spirit uses it to show, to show us love like we have never known or ever conceived before. And that love moves us to repent, to turn away from everything that we know to be wrong. So it is important that we have a true sense of our sin. It's also necessary that we have an apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ. He who comes to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who diligently seek him. And so this is a sermon not just for the unconverted. This is a sermon for you and for me when we have fallen into sin again and we feel our dirt and we feel our uncleanness 
And we come before the Lord like David did, and he records it in Psalm 51. And we say, in spite of all the other people that I might have hurt through this, against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. Now, I need you to cleanse me, and I need you to renew in me a right spirit. And if you are having trouble repenting of a sin, then I urge you to look at Psalm 51. And then after you have prayed through Psalm 51, turn to Psalm 32, that other psalm that David wrote out of appreciation and gratitude for God's forgiving him after his sin with Bathsheba. So this sermon on repentance is not just for people who are repenting for the first time. It's also for those of us who have been repenting for 40 or 50 years and still need to repent. True repentance is based upon a sense of our sin and an apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ. And then hear the conclusion of the catechism's definition. Let me, let me just say it all for you. Repentance under life is a saving grace whereby a sinner out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ does with grief and hatred turn from it unto God with full purpose of an endeavor after new obedience. Repentance says, I'm leaving this behind. I'm turning away from my sin. My mind has been changed about sin, and now I'm taking the decisive step of deliberately turning away from it. You turn away from your sin, and at the same time, you turn to God. Where else are you going to turn? Any, 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 any revolution short of Facing God full on is remaining in sin. Repentance, you turn from it unto God with this prayer on your lips. God, I cannot live this life on my own. But if you help me, I'll spend the rest of my life obeying you. Because when you repent, you turn to God with full purpose of, it means you fully intend And endeavor after, that means you really try, new obedience. And uh, this is instruction for those of you who don't know how to repent. But this is also information for those of you who have repented, but continue to struggle under a weight of sin. Have you repented? Then God says, I forgive you. So Jesus, in his first sermon, had these two main points. And I intended to spend just this, all the time that I have spent on repentance. And God willing, next week I'll get to his second point on believe the gospel. What does that mean? But really, they are two sides of the same coin. It's impossible for you to repent unless you also believe the gospel. And it's impossible for you to believe the gospel unless you also repent. And... uh, So today, my friend, have you repented? Are you still casually being swept along with the rebellion against God? Then today, see what sin is. See that it is something that renders you liable to judgment from God. You're guilty. It is something also that is influencing your character. You are corrupted and polluted by sin. 
And it's something that is so powerful that you cannot extricate yourself from it. You cannot save yourself out of your sin. You must look to God for his saving grace in order to lift you out of your sin. And then for those of you who have been saved for all of these years, then repent of your sin. As soon as you, as soon as you know that you have sinned and done something that is wrong, repent of it. Call it what it is. Ask for God's forgiveness and ask for, ask for his enabling grace to enable you to uh, pursue after uh, new obedience in Christ. Jim Bob, come and lead us in a concluding hymn. <clears throat>